This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Stories abound about plucky entrepreneurs financing their startups, but it's unusual to get trench view insights from founders who have slogged their way through endless pitches along Sand Hill Road. Ethan Perlstein, founder and CEO of the rare disease drug discovery company Perlara, shared what he gleaned from his recent $7.4 million equity round for his company in a piece on the CNBC website. We spoke to Perlstein about his experience what he learned in the process, and his practical advice for entrepreneurs seeking funding. Ethan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You've recently completed a round of financing for Polara. When you first raised money, you did so through crowdfunding. We talked about that experience. You now completed a larger and more conventional round, and we're going to talk about what you've learned through your experiences funding your company. Perhaps though, we can begin with an explanation of Prolara, which uses model organisms that have been engineered to serve as models for rare diseases and, and screen potential drugs for them. Can you explain the process? Sure. I mean, you can really think about it as once a family concludes the diagnostic odyssey, uh, and, and in this case, I'm really referring specifically to, you know, thousands of these uh, genetic, rare, often monogenic diseases. You know, after the completion of this diagnostic odyssey, they have to begin the therapeutic odyssey. And that's where uh, Prolara really, I think, addresses a, a big gap in the, in the current market um, because we're often working with highly motivated families that are part of very, very tiny uh, communities, you know, fewer than 100 patients. So thought to be too tiny for uh, for pharma to invest, um, and, and academic labs, as much as they want to help, aren't really structured or funded uh, appropriately to do everything from, uh, you know, basic science, the drug discovery, uh, translational research, uh, and, and commercializing all of that, kind of where Prolara steps in. What makes this a particularly good approach for the discovery of drugs to treat rare diseases? So what we really rely on are the good unit economics of using simple whole animal models, um, otherwise referred to uh, by geneticists as model organisms, as you pointed out at, at the beginning. Uh, this includes yeast, uh, you know, maker's yeast, um, worms, nematodes, often referred to, uh, flies, fruit flies, and zebra fish, and of course mice, uh, other rodent models that um, people tend to sort of refer to generally as animal models. You know, forgetting that these simple organisms are also animals. So um, using genetic technology, uh, one can now program in and create patient avatars where worms or flies or yeast or fish would have 
exact patient mutation uh, edited into them, programmed into them, uh, and therefore having a disease recapitulated in a whole animal setting. You use the, whole, the human cell patient-derived uh, models as well. So we don't ignore cell models, um, but we say we bring to the table all of these whole animal models, which traditionally have not been used for, for drug discovery. They've been used extensively for you know, basic research, but really haven't been um, used extensively uh, to date in drug discovery. You mentioned you work closely with small patient groups. Can you explain your business model and particularly what a ProQuest is? Yeah, you can kind of think about it as um, these uh, these small patient advocacy groups, um, and they can be set up as uh, charities uh, or even LLCs. They really need to kickstart drug discovery uh, in a very personalized way, but also in a way that's um, you know as fast as humanly possible. Essentially, is how a lot of advocates. Uh, talk about it. So that's kind of what Polara offers is a, a one-stop shop uh, where uh, we can do this, uh, if necessary, basic science uh, quickly uh, and then drug discovery and then further translational work. But we can do this for, for tiny disease communities and we can do it and, and with economics that, um, that work and match the fundraising potential of a lot of these communities. Uh, and so the idea is that we, we are de-risking the earliest stages of drug discovery and then ultimately we see ProQuest as at some point, uh, becoming a new co that gets spun out of Prolara when we've sufficiently de-risked, uh, in this case, a small molecule asset, uh, and, and are ready to take it uh, into the clinic. So that's kind of the bigger vision of ProQuest, but it really just fundamentally starts out as you know, patient groups are, are funding research where, where, where no one really is able to do it currently in the marketplace. Your first round, you raised about $2 million. You had a couple of key investors, but part of that came through crowdfunding. What types of investors were you able to attract, and did they have some kind of connection to rare disease? Well, I, I would actually sort of uh, clarify that uh, you know the first round that we raised, the uh, uh, first price round, uh, you know, equity round we raised, wasn't technically uh, equity crowdfunding. Uh, it, it's a syndicate of angels, uh, high net worth individuals, strategic family offices. I actually did crowdfunding in the kind of you know conventional sense, the Kickstarter sense, um, you know, before. Before Prolara, before Pearlstein Lab, even, which was the first name of the company back in 2014. So the roots of sort of my leaving academia are, are based in crowdfunding. And uh, in fact, in this current round, we actually did um, work with MicroVentures, um, which, which is a platform uh, that enables uh, uh, equity crowdfunding uh, from accredited investors. So we, we did, we have done that in this current round, but uh, I would say. You know, the first round we raised was really a syndicate, and, it, and it's kind of unusual, I, you, you might say, to have a syndicate the way that we did, because you know, funding biotech companies, feeding biotech companies, is is something that is, uh, you know, uh, can be difficult if you're specifically in the pharma and biotherapy and therapeutic space. This time, you raised a more significant round, a total of seven point four million dollars. If I understood correctly, there were no institutional investors. What type of investors did you add to the mix this time? So we, we essentially started to, to fundraise from our base, which were the, the investors, the existing investors we had from the first round, uh, and then added new new investors, uh, sort of a 50-50 blend. Uh, and, and so there wasn't an institutional lead, you know, quote-unquote. Um, and, and so in that case, again, this round is a syndicate that may, may be considered a little atypical or unusual for, for a biopharma or a therapeutics platform company, but um, it was the, it was the path available to us. You recently wrote about lessons learned from your fundraising efforts in a piece on the CNBC website. 
I thought we could walk through some of those lessons learned. One of the things you mentioned was that you spent a fair bit of time pitching conventional VCs. That's a fertile ground for rejection. What's that like for a budding entrepreneur? What kind of a toll does that take? Well, actually, I think, um, you know, a bio Twitter uh, friend um, uh, actually did a little tweet storm that I think really got to the essence of that, which is that if you're the first the first time founder, uh, like I am, then every rejection is about you because you can't really do the control experiment, which is to remove yourself as CEO or fundraiser in chief and, and put in substitute somebody else, um, you know, and, and say, let's hold the pitch constant and see what happens. You can't do that. <laughs> so all you know is that a rejection ultimately is fundamentally about you. Because if I had been a seasoned entrepreneur, if I had been a third, second or third or uh, fourth even exited, successfully exited founder, there'd be no, no question that they would be lining up to fund uh, a company. But since I didn't have that, then of course it's really only about me. <laughs> and, and in many ways, only a function of the fact that I'm a first timer. And so that, that you know, rejection is to be expected in fundraising. But, you know, when, and of course I brought this upon myself to be a solo founder, but it's still no, 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 no less demoralizing. I think there are many entrepreneurs who are of the mindset that they should pitch any VC that'll let them and that it's a, it's a numbers game. One bit of advice you offer, though, is not to take any meetings with VCs who haven't already invested in your space or vertical. Can you explain? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, the, I think fundraising, uh, founders are often naive about the the, the, the broader context of, of fundraising and then actually how VCs themselves have to fundraise. Um, and, and so I think, you know, you know fundamentally, uh, the VC's job is to go out and scout and discover all these um, these opportunities. It, it's not the job of the founders to just simply essentially provide a constant on-demand free tutoring on location, even uh, tutoring show up at your door <laughs> and provide, you know, an hour of their time for free um, over and over again, not factoring in transportation and, and other other opportunity costs. Uh, and that's just, to me, doesn't make any sense. Uh, but you kind of, as a founder, oftentimes all you think about is getting to the next uh, funding check. And so you don't have necessarily time to step back and think about, you know, how does, how does venture capital form and, you know, how, what are the dynamics of funds and what does it matter when in a fund cycle it, you, you're you're dealing with a um, you know a, a VC, so I think it, it's the bigger point is founders need to be aware that um, kind of going out of their own mental bubble that uh, you know th there's a bigger dynamic here, and that ultimately VCs are, are should be venturing out and finding these opportunities. It's, it's not that they should be kind of uh, delivered as though you know by by Uber uh, on demand to to Sand Hill Road whenever sort of they get the inkling or desire to to learn about a vertical or or to assess the opportunities in, in biology. You did learn that VCs were, were very willing to sit down with you to learn about your space. What should entrepreneurs like yourself do to pre-qualify a VC before they spend their time and invest in a meeting? I think the pre-qualification comes from kind of looking taking a deep, hard look at, at, the, at the fund and, and looking at their portfolio, um, looking at the timing of their fund, looking at what fund this is, understanding who the, the partnership is. This is a decision that's made by multiple people. It has to be consensus. Uh, you have to be very strategic about who, um, as a founder, you think is going to add the most value on top of the investment capital. Um, it, it's not just about uh, going through these motions and, oh, if a company reaches a certain set of milestones, 
that means you know Series A or Series B discussions must therefore start. Um, I think founders just have to understand that venture capital is not also a necessary way to build every business, especially not, and we're trying to show that, especially not necessarily uh, only in, in, in biotech or biopharma. You also say there's never reason to take more than two face-to-face meetings. Can you explain that? I mean, it's sort of like, just think about this from the point of view of the analogy in dating. Would you go on you know, three or four dates with somebody where it was sort of left at, at every at the end of every date, you know, uncertain as to what's the what's the future here. Um, is this sort of just how long can you kind of get to know somebody uh, at that at that kind of superficial level, where in an office for or at a cafe or wherever, uh, Starbucks for for thirty minutes for sixty minutes. Um, you know, if there, you know, VCs and, and any investor, you know, can invest after five minutes. <laughs> they can invest after five seconds. Um, and, and so this idea that somehow this, the, 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 the part before the due diligence even starts has to kind of take forever is ridiculous. Uh, they want to commit and they can say they're in and they usually know in their bones within minutes. Um, and, and so they can therefore go to a, a diligence process, will take its time, get the investment or you won't, and then you move on. And linked to that notion that they, they know within five minutes if they're interested, you say that an entrepreneur at the end of that meeting should take the temperature of the VC. Why is that important? Because I think otherwise a founder could just sort of be lulled into this sense of, well, another call or another meeting is a sign of progress, no matter how small a baby step, that could lead to an investment. And I think that's just founders deluding themselves. So in, in taking the temperature, what do you want to ask the VC? You want to say, hey, um, can you please uh, point to another investment um, you know, in your portfolio that, that you use as a way to you know, um, benchmark us or, or gauge us? Because that's, of course, what, what, what they're going to be doing. And so I think you should be very upfront about that, especially if you're asking about their portfolio or even other investments by this partner. Um, you should be asking questions like, um, so you know, what, do you, what do you think right now are um, you know, the major risks in the company? Um, and you can just be very honest and say, you know, in my case, I'd say, well, do you think there's management team risk? I, you know, I'm a first-time founder. Can you please give me a sense of um, how that factors in? And then you can tell if someone's being evasive or if they're honest, uh, answering honestly. So if your ego wasn't bruised enough to do this process, you invite them to give it a good swift kick. Well, I, I think, uh, you know, it, investment, no matter how much it wants to be, you know, dressed up as this, uh, that diligence is this, uh, is this, this process like like going through a, a dissertation uh, defense? Um, you know, it's, I, I don't. I, I, let's not exaggerate here. It's you know, investors understand industry. They understand maybe even very specific niche markets. If they see companies that fall into that vertical or into that space, that market, then they understand all the ins and outs pretty quickly. Uh, and so they don't need a lot of time here to know um, whether they would like to make investment. Of course, they still should not be impulsive. They go through a diligence process, but let's not. Do all this pre-diligence, um, um, uh, you know, extended uh, meetings and, and endless meetings. Let's just either get to a decision of diligence or not as quickly as possible. One of your investors is the accelerator Y Combinator. I, I should note you've said that joining Y Combinator was one of the best decisions you made. Why was that? I think, as I said, you learn this now after doing sort of two rounds. But the real way I think to to fundraise. Um, is to, is to build from your base, which is you don't need you don't want to wholesale bring in a whole, whole a, a new fresh fresh set of faces. You want to build on your investors from the beginning, and and have them prove 
to you that they believe in the vision as well. They didn't just want to write one check. They didn't just get compelled because of an early, you know, vision back that, I mean, many years ago. They're still compelled by the company as it materialized uh, over the years and how they how they could see adding more value in the future. So YC taught me that it's about this community. It's about get your crew, uh, your ride or die crew, I guess, is um, as, as the very brilliant editors at CNBC, um, um, you know, subheaded that that part of the you know part, part of my my, my op ed. You're an active Twitter user. I, I think it's worth noting that your social media activity played a role in in each of your financings. Can you explain the role it's played? Well, I think it's played a similar role that it's played for the Rare Disease Advocate, um, in that it, it's about people, it's about ways for either companies, individuals, or or causes or mission to to brand themselves and to use take have control of their media and distribution channels and when they put out their message uh, and have control over editorial you know control over their message they can attract an audience and a following and then that can lead to all kinds of fortuitous subsequent um, meetings interactions and then maybe in some cases investments. Do you think that was something that was unique to your own experience or is that something other entrepreneurs should? consider as a way to build a path to funding? I mean, I, I've seen other people do it, um, you know, who are celebrities, uh, who are artists, who are musicians, and you, you can see them doing this on Twitter. And so in a lot of ways, I was always inspired by that that indie approach. And that's why I initially, you know, in the in the early embryonic days of what eventually became Flora, you know, referred to, the, you know, what I was doing as indie science and, and drawing that uh, parallel. And I think you see many examples of branded, sort of quote-unquote branded entrepreneurs nowadays, you know, with tens of thousands of followers. Of course, you see many examples of branded investors um, who go out there and take advantage of the same platform, um, you know, to create uh, and, and elevate their brand. What do you do with this funding, and where is it going to take you? What what goals do you need to hit? So it's going to allow us to advance our, our current um, programs that are in collaboration uh, with Novartis. It's going to allow us to advance forward our, our first class of ProQuest um, to points where we can really start getting down to a, a preclinical development candidate and, and, and pathway uh, to first patient or first dose. Uh, and then we want to be able to show that we can continue to um, grow and, in fact, double the size of our, our platform by, by taking on uh, six new ProQuest partnerships. Um, so that this capital allows us to um, build up our headcount, build up our infrastructure um, so that we can tackle all these programs while, um, of course, keeping our costs uh, very reasonable and ultimately showing um, that uh, uh, the big goal for 2018 is showing that um, we can make our uh, make our business model um, cash flow positive. Ethan Perlstein, CEO and founder of Prolara. Ethan, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.